Hello and uh, welcome to an unusual sermon in that it is recorded without uh, a live congregation. Um, In the past, this has happened a couple of times where we've had to record sermons after church because the recording hasn't worked during church. But this is the first time that we've uh, cancelled church. And so because of the weather, concerns about the slope and so on, we've cancelled church for today. Uh, But we're putting the sermon online. Part of the reason for that is because we are excited about this new series. Uh, The series is called The Heart of Our Faith. And we're thinking, uh, really, as we're heading towards Easter now, we're thinking about uh, the first Easter. And so the last couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel. And then the first couple of chapters after Easter, the first couple of chapters of Acts. And so that's going to be where we are biblically over the next few weeks. We're excited about this because Easter is is a special time of year when we are able to bring our thoughts right back to the very centre, to the, the, the ground zero of Christianity, if you like, to the point at which everything converges, the whole hinge of history and all those kind of phrases, uh, because the first Easter is so incredibly significant. And in order to launch the series... Uh, What I'd like to do today is to introduce us to Easter in Luke's Gospel. So we've got four Gospels in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are four documents that were written uh, about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. A couple of them were written by eyewitnesses who were there. Uh, One of them, Mark, was written sort of... uh, almost like the secretary of one of the eyewitnesses who was uh, really Peter. So we sometimes think of Peter being behind Mark's gospel and Mark writing down what he heard from Peter. But Luke is one that was written based on research. And so Luke wasn't there, but he went and he spoke to the people. He investigated, he kept notes, he interviewed. And uh, there's a, a richness to Luke's gospel because of that. And so we're thinking about this carefully researched, historically clear celebration of the gospel, which is Luke, the book of Luke. And the book of Luke divides quite nicely into a a couple of big sections. The first part of the gospel really takes us through to chapter 9, and it focuses on Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee. So in the region of Galilee, where he was from, Jesus did lots of miracles and some teaching, and, and I suppose this is sort of a, a season of authentication. It's Jesus presenting himself to the people that are up in the region of Galilee. But then when we get to the end of chapter 9, we come to this key verse where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from chapter 9 uh, onwards, for about 10, 11 chapters, We refer to this, I suppose, as the the journey narrative, like the journey section of Luke's gospel. It's not that Jesus literally was just traveling from north to south. In in a sense, uh, it's a little bit like the journey that uh, you might think of a president making. I read one book that said, uh, that used the analogy of a president from uh, such and such a town, wherever, to the White House. But the actual journey uh, that they make is not direct, you know, get in a plane and fly directly there. There's the journey that they go through uh, over the course of the years. And I suppose in Luke, we've got an element of that. There's the actual literal journey from north to south, from Galilee to Jerusalem. But actually, there's much more than that going on. This is Jesus preparing uh, for this coming 
uh, event and beyond that, he's preparing uh, to go ultimately back to heaven. And so there's this kind of expectation that's built through the gospel of Luke. In the first part, look, Jesus is here. Look at who he is. And then in the second uh, big chunk of the book, an expectation that Jesus is creating in terms of are we ready for what he's going to do and for what he's going to establish uh, in the future, this coming kingdom of God that he is working on. So we're going to sort of taste a bit of that today. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to think about the fact that during both of these sections, so up in Galilee and then during the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus predicted what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. And the reason that that's important for us is because it would be a massive shame for us to read the Gospels, to get excited about Jesus, to enjoy what we're reading, to enjoy his character, his compassion, his miracles and so on, and miss the fact that Jesus was on a mission to die. Some people have presented it exactly the opposite to what it was. They, uh, some people will say that Jesus was this revolutionary that had this teaching and this ability to influence lives and, and everything was going so well and the crowds were building and then somehow things got out of hand and he ended up sadly dying on a cross and that was sort of the end uh, of a good thing. But that is to completely miss the point. When Jesus came into this world, he came into this world on a mission. And the goal, the destination, the focus of that mission ultimately was for him to go to the cross, to die, to rise again on the third day, to ascend to heaven, and then to be uh, in a position to establish God's great purposes. Okay, so that's important for us to see. And there are numerous places in Luke's gospel where Jesus predicts what's going to happen. And I want us to look at three, three great predictions of Jesus's death and resurrection. And the first one we're going to look at comes in Luke chapter 9. And so Luke chapter 9 is the end of this authentication period where Jesus has been, if you like, proving himself up in Galilee or presenting himself. He's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, he's been doing a whole host of things which have had a great effect. In fact, when you come into chapter 9 from verses 10 down to 17, Jesus feeds the 5,000. This was huge. This was a a big, spectacular, crowd-stirring miracle. And so when you get to the end of that, the, the disciples are picking up the baskets of bread and so on, and they're amazed and the crowds are amazed, and things seem to be really climbing, that the hype is building, that the, the, there's, there's a, an expectation surrounding Jesus. And then in verse 18, uh, Jesus was praying, and the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? The response of the disciples representing the crowd was, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets of old. And so they're they're looking backwards and they're saying, Jesus, you you must be one of the greats from the past. A a prophet like uh, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, or even Moses. I mean, one of the great prophets. Actually, Moses was the, uh, in some ways, the greatest prophet, although we don't think of him that way. 
and uh, he was told that a greater prophet would come in the future. But, but they're looking backwards and they're seeing all of these greats in their history. They're, they're getting a stirring that, that this, this is it. Like this is uh, this person, this Jesus, maybe he's the Christ, maybe, uh, well, they're not saying that, as we'll see, but they're saying that he is the, the key figure. He is, he is evidence that something great is happening. And so there's this, there's this stirring. And I suppose the issue with that is that they're missing the richness of, of who he was. Uh, verse 20 then Jesus said to them but who do you say that I am and 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 Peter gets to give the punchline Peter gets to be the one that opens his mouth and and says really what everybody is is sort of thinking sort of hoping sort of wondering he puts it in words and he says the Christ of God the the one that was predicted the one that was expected the one that we anticipated you're it This is a key moment. This is a key moment because for several chapters, Jesus has been, if you like, proving that he is the Christ. He's been presenting himself as the Christ, not necessarily openly for everyone, but subtly and deliberately. And there's been a a, a proving that's been going on. But at this point, what is it that the crowds are thinking? What is it that the disciples are expecting? I suppose from a human perspective, they're looking at Jesus and they're expecting if this is the Christ, then this is this is it, guys. This is the glory hour. This is the the one who is going to lead the charge and defeat the Romans and establish a political kingdom and all is going to go well. And, And there's this built up expectation regarding Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Once this word Christ emerges into the conversation, Jesus doesn't say, great, now let's make some posters and let's do a social media campaign. Jesus says, shh, I don't want that being stated so overtly. Why? Because he said that, Notice verse 21, 22, he strictly charged them, commanded them to tell this to no one, saying. So in in the context of keeping that quiet, in the context of them declaring him to be the Christ, Jesus says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's the prediction. Prediction number one of the three that we're going to look at here is number one. And how clear is that? Not that they understood it, but how clear when we read it, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Who by? By the leadership. Uh, The crowds may love him, the nation may love him, but the leadership ultimately are going to reject him. He's explicit. He says the Son of Man must be killed and on the third day be raised. I'm struck by this here, just like uh, I have been in the past in Mark's gospel, the same kind of idea that, that the popular expectation that Jesus is the Christ and everything therefore is going to go fine and smooth, Jesus squashes that before it even gets going and says, no, 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 you cannot have the Christ without the cross. 
You cannot have the miracles and the, the, the mercy and the compassion and the kindness without the suffering and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to do nice things. Ultimately, Jesus came to die. And I suppose even today when we're in church world and we think about the death of Jesus on a regular basis, we can still push it to the side, can't we? We can still feel like, actually, you know what? I, I like Jesus. I like what he brings into my life, the peace and the, 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 the sense of help and the, somebody to talk to. And, and Jesus is my savior and Jesus gives me a nice future. And we can, we can almost create a whole package of benefits, if you like, that Jesus brings to us and yet at the same time neglect the cross and act as if somehow Jesus' kindness to us is some sort of benevolence on his part, like just a, a sharing of his wealth without recognizing that it was a sharing of his life that made it possible. Jesus doesn't come just to do nice things for us. Jesus came to die for us. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples having a half, uh, half picture of Jesus the Christ. He wanted them to see really the fullness of Jesus the Christ. In fact, in the following verses, he immediately says to them, this is kind of a warning, okay, you guys are getting excited about political kingdoms and change and success, and it's all very exciting, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to, the, to die, I'm going to suffer, and then what? Then, then greatness and glory and, and wonder? No, no, no. And if anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow after me in my footsteps in the years to come, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And on he goes. Isn't that, isn't that astonishing? Here they were with their expectation that the special moment was coming and Jesus totally turns that upside down and says, first of all, I'm going to die. And secondly, if you're going to follow after me, you're going to experience the hatred that I've experienced. You're going to experience the pain that I've experienced. In a very real sense, you are going to be called to die daily in a world that rejects and hates and despises you because you are with me. We shouldn't be surprised when life isn't easy. We shouldn't be surprised when people turn against us. Jesus told his disciples from the start, if you're going to recognize that I'm the Christ, you've got to realize that the cross is going to be central to everything. Central to everything that I've come to do and central to everything that you are going to experience in your life of following Jesus in this world. And so there's the first prediction. The prediction, I suppose, is from a human perspective, they're looking at this coming kingdom and all seems to be going gloriously and swimmingly and happily. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're going to understand what I've come to do, you've got to understand the cross and you've got to understand that the steps I take are the steps you will be called to take too. He's recasting their expectation and maybe challenging ours. That's why we are talking about the heart of our faith, because at the core, at the heart, at the base, at the very center of everything that we stand for here at Trinity Chippenham, there's a cross outside Jerusalem where our Savior died for us.
And that marks not only his mission, it marks our lives. At the end of that little section there, in verse 27, uh, Jesus obviously can see the look on their faces, the, the, the concern, the consternation, the confusion, the disappointment perhaps. And he says to them, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That this kingdom that they were, they were thinking was imminent, that was going to happen any time, Jesus says, well, actually, some of you are going to get to see it. And so uh, we come to verse 28, and, uh, and this is sort of a taster of the ultimate future. This is, if you like, a, 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 an input into the story of the text that comes not from the human perspective. Hey, what do people say that I am? Or, you know, what do you think? This is coming from heaven's perspective. And so what we read from verse 28, it, it, in some ways, is bizarre, but it's so significant. It's such a key moment for these disciples and for the flow of Luke's gospel. It's what we call the transfiguration. And I want you to see this because the transfiguration sets up the next prediction of Jesus' death. So we're thinking now about the second prediction that's going to come before we get to the end of chapter 9. And so after about uh, eight days... Uh, Peter and John and James with Jesus go up on the mountain. Okay, so they're up on a mountain. And as Jesus was praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke, notice this, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Literally his exodus. Just hold on to that thought that Jesus was was heading to Jerusalem en route to somewhere else. Okay, so they're speaking with Jesus about that. So in this moment, these three disciples are are sort of having the curtains pulled back and, and discovering that heaven, if you like, the kingdom of God, is happening at the same time. It already exists and it already contains people like Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, who died at the end of Deuteronomy. Elijah, who didn't die but was taken up in 2 Kings, just sort of transported up without dying. And and so these two men, I suppose you could say the the great lawgiver and the great prophet, or you could say an early prophet and a late prophet, whatever you want to say, these are two of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And here they are, very much alive. And they're speaking with Jesus and they are anticipating What's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem? So there's a whole load of things that are swirling around in this. Now, uh, Peter, verse 32, and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus's glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, notice that. This is a moment now where, where this, this moment is, is finishing. Moses and Elijah are turning. Jesus is turning to head down the mountain, to head towards Jerusalem. And Peter says, wait, 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 wait. Let's, 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 let's freeze. Let's pause. Let's stay here. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or my beloved. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was alone and they kept silent, told no one anything of what what they'd seen. Later on in 2 Peter 
Years later, Peter looks back on this as an absolutely critical moment. It's interesting to compare 2 Peter chapter 1 with, with this passage to, to see what it was about this moment that so stirred Peter to give him such confidence moving forward in the future. I just think it's a beautiful thing to notice in the detail here that here's this moment of, of heavenly glory breaking through and Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. I suppose we could say this is kind of like Jesus in his normal experience when he wasn't uh, down on earth for 30 odd years. And yet Jesus turned away and was ready again to leave that moment and to head forward towards the cross. I think that may be why the Father speaks at that moment. When Peter tries to to press pause and to keep them there, the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the greater one than Moses. This is the ultimate prophet. This is the person that speaks for God. Listen to him. And so they came down from the mountain. And when they came down from the mountain, there was a great crowd again. Remember, there's a great crowd earlier in the chapter Jesus fed. Now there's a great crowd and a, a healing that's needed. There's a father with an only son. And this son is, is being messed about by demons and, and it's just a horrible situation. And so Jesus calls for that son to come and the demon grabs a hold and Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to his father Verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. That word majesty is the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1 to refer to what they had seen on the mountain. It's an unusual word, but the majesty of God that Peter, James and John had seen up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now the crowd is seeing down below where demons and sickness and everything's broken And Jesus restores this son and gives him back to his father. It's a beautiful picture of so many facets of what's going on. But but just feel the contrast. The majesty up on the mountain. But now the majesty demonstrated down below. And then we come to verse 43 still, second half. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples... And so we've got this glorious transfiguration followed by this astonished crowd. We've got this glorious, impressive sight on the mountain. And then we've got this astonished crowd that are impressed with his majesty as it's it's doing its work. And Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. He knows they're not getting it, but he wants them to hear it. Verse 44, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's another prediction. And and it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, they were confused. It it says, verse 45, they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying, why is the Son of Man going to be delivered into the hands of men? If if this glorious, uh, impressive majesty on the mountain uh, is coming down and it's it's doing such good down here and everybody's astonished and everybody's stirred, then then surely the way forward is not to be handed over. 
into the hands of sinful men, but to fix the sinful men, right? Surely Jesus should do something uh, that, 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 that deals with the problem. Notice how the, the verses follow on here. The disciples started to argue about who was the greatest. So Jesus brought a child and, and told them, look, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You've got to receive a child in my name and so on. And, and so that there's just confusion among the disciples about the majesty and the greatness and the positions and so on. And then after that, verse 49 there's, there's more confusion. John says, look, there was someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not with us. Jesus said, don't stop him. The, the one who's not against you is for you. And, and then in the following verses, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him. They go into a village and uh, the Samaritans, the people did not receive him. And there's this rejection. And so this whole section that we've just looked at has this tension of a glorious life but a humiliated death, an astonished crowd and yet rejected by the people. And somehow, and I think this is still true for us today, the glory of Jesus and the gore of Calvary are confusing. They didn't get it yet. We know how it plays out. We know what happened. And to be honest, there are times where we don't quite get it either. Surely there must have been another way. Surely God could have just overridden and dealt with and sorted, but actually, no, this was the way. And so these two sections that we've looked at within chapter 9, from an earthly perspective or from a human perspective, you've got the climbing, increasing hype of the crowd. Yay, Jesus. Uh, And then Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get who I am. And then the second prediction comes after the Father has given the heavenly perspective that this Jesus heading down away from the transfiguration, heading down towards his future is delightfully pleasing and he's the one that we should listen to. And so there's this clarity, if you like, from heaven, but still a confusion for the people delivered into the hands of men, lots of heads getting scratched at that and so 9 verse 51 we just skipped over it but we've got to see it when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem that's the hinge point of Luke's gospel that's the moment at which Jesus instead of doing his ministry in Galilee embarks on his journey to Jerusalem but notice that Jerusalem is actually a stopping point it's not the ultimate destination it says when the days drew near for him to be taken up that is the goal of of the whole thing was for the whole thing to be finished so that Jesus could return to his father back to what the disciples had glimpsed on the mountain and to move forward towards the point at which God's kingdom purposes would all be brought together and fulfilled but Jerusalem was a necessary stop on the way And so from chapter 9 on, I wish we had the time to just walk through these stories. They're fascinating to see Jesus' teaching, Jesus' parables, Jesus' instruction, Jesus' warnings. Jesus is stirring the people to make sure that they're ready for when the kingdom of God comes. But I want us to see the third great prediction of Jesus' death. So far we've seen his prediction in 9 verses 21 and 22. 
we've seen it again in 9 verses, what, 43, 44, in that section there. We've seen these two predictions, uh, that Jesus uh, cannot be accepted as the Christ if we don't have the cross in the picture. And that if we're, once we put the cross in the picture, it may create confusion for us, but from God's perspective, it's exactly what needed to happen. And then we come to chapter 18 of Luke's gospel. Again, I wish we could go through this in detail, but it's, we're in a sequence of stories. And the stories are, are engaging the issue of, of, of how is it possible for people to be saved? How is it possible for people to be brought into God's kingdom, into God's family, into, into salvation? And so he tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector from verses 9 to 14. An absolutely shocking story that says, you know, no matter how good you are, no matter how full of yourself you are, God's not impressed. And actually the people who receive God's mercy actually receive the sacrifice that God provides for them are people who are humble and who recognize their need. And so coming out of that, there's a couple of stories. There's uh, some humble children that, that serve as a good visual aid for that. And then there's this rich ruler who comes and, and he comes to Jesus in verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's a a man who thinks that we can perform and we can be good enough and we can live up to certain standards. And Jesus is the ultimate standard keeper. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Goodness is not about keeping rules. It's ultimately only to be found in God himself. But then he talks about the rules and the man says, I've kept all the rules. And so Jesus says, okay, sell everything that you have and give the money away to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Here Jesus puts his finger on the one thing that reveals the issue with this man. He was still captivated with himself and it's only in giving all that he had away that he could be freed of that. And Jesus, I think, knew that he wouldn't do that. And so he went away sad. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, asks a provocative question how difficult is it for those or it is sorry for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God so he's raising an issue for them now remember they're thinking in old testament terms that riches and wealth mean blessing from God and he's saying look no actually no matter how rich no matter how wealthy no matter how successful no matter how blessed you may appear It's impossible to go from that to salvation, to go from that to good relationship with God. In fact, it's almost like it's a hindrance because we think that we're doing okay. Those who heard it said, then, who can be saved? This is a a critical question. I suppose for us, we're living today in in a time of incredible wealth. I understand that that most of us in the church are not incredibly wealthy by our culture standards, but, but compared to most people in the world, we are all very wealthy. And so the question, who can be saved, is a very real question. If it's not possible to be saved based on good performance, if it's not possible to be saved based on success or based on apparent blessing, then how in the world can we be saved? Jesus says, verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible 
with God. How? Peter immediately defends himself and says, you know, look, we've, we've given up a whole load of stuff, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, and, and that's fine, and, and you'll be rewarded for that. But, but back to the point, verse 31, here's the answer. Here's the explanation of what is impossible with men, but is possible with God. Verse 31, Jesus says, it says, taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That's how salvation, impossible for us, is possible for God. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. It was only later when they saw the cross and they saw the resurrected Jesus that the whole thing came together for them to be, be, become really the, the messengers who would take this out across the world. You know, it may be that for some of us, we're still not clear. Maybe for some of us, you may have gone to church for years, but you could still think that, you know, well... God loves me because, and then fill in the blank with something about you. I'm not as bad as some people. I've done okay. I've tried my best. I'm sure the good will outweigh the bad. You, you might think that's ridiculous for me to say that in a church, but actually that is what a lot of people still think. Maybe you're coming to Trinity Chippenham. Maybe you've never even been, and the first time you want to come, church is cancelled and you're listening to this message online. I don't know, but it's entirely possible to think that somehow salvation is possible. And this tells us, this passage, Luke 18, makes it really clear. It is not possible. It is not possible for you to be good enough. It is not possible for you to be wealthy enough. It is not possible for you to fix yourself enough. It's impossible. It's impossible for every last one of us to ever be saved and to, to be in a position where we could stand before God with any confidence whatsoever. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so through Luke's gospel, through all the gospels, Jesus makes it clear that his going to the cross was no mistake. That the first Easter was not a, a PR exercise gone wrong. No, it was the mission. It was the goal. It was the target that he was aiming for. Jesus had to go to the cross in order for you or for me to be saved. He had to go to the cross and suffer and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged. I mean, how many details are there in this passage? He had to go through that. It was necessary. It had to happen. It was God's plan. It was God's purpose. This is a big theme in Luke's gospel that it is necessary that it happens. And Jesus went to the cross completely on purpose, completely in line with God's will because the will of God reveals the heart of God for you and for me. He loves us and he loves us so much that he was willing to do that for us. He was willing to send his son and Jesus was willing to go. He could have gone in any direction, but he went to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him there and he went there 
because the purpose of God and the heart of God and therefore the purpose of Christianity and the heart of our faith is that Jesus would die on the cross and then on the third day be raised to life so that we can now enjoy life with him, participating with him in the spread of this message. Let's make sure that we allow this message to touch our hearts because this is the heart of our faith. This is what Christianity is based upon and grounded upon. It's all right here that Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Father, I pray that you would so stir our hearts with the reality of the cross. So grip us with the purpose of your heart to reach us through this just incredible means. The, 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 the sending of your son and for Jesus to come and to die there. Lord, we, we're humbled. We're humbled that you would do that for us. We pray that this Easter, that reality would grip our hearts. And stir from us worship and stir from us a life of response. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the message that so changes us and can so change this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.